the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. about the so-called climate emergency practically every day in the press from politicians, activists, and churches. We're told that computerized climate model forecasts, they actually forecast catastrophic global warming in the future if we don't radically change our way of life. But what if these models have little scientific meaning in the real world? What if the so-called global temperature that the models supposedly forecast doesn't even exist? So global warming is not even a rational concept. In other words, what if the modern climate debate is largely divorced from real-world science? To discuss this, my guest today is Dr. Christopher Essex, Emeritus Professor of Mathematics and Emeritus Professor of Physics at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. He is a Bachelor of Science from Western and MSc from Rice University in Texas and a PhD from York University in Toronto. Professor Essex is a former director of Western's theoretical physics program and a former associate chair of applied mathematics. Professor Essex held a Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada, or NSERC, postdoctoral fellowship at the Canadian Climate Centre to work on its GCM, or General Circulation Climate Model. NSERC is a billion-dollar government corporation that funds fundamental research in Canada. Interestingly, Dr. Essex built his first computer climate model in the 1970s. So he's been involved with computerized climate models for a long time indeed. So he well appreciates the limits of modeling and computation in the climate field. He also became chair of the World Federation of Scientists Permanent Monitoring Panel for Climate in 2011. And here's the part that really made me a a Chris Essex fan. Chris is an award-winning teacher and co-recipient of the $10,000 Donner Prize for the book Taken by Storm, The Troubled Science, Policy, and Politics of Global Warming, which had a second edition published in 2007. And this book actually is something I'll link to under the podcast because it's got some super important concepts that show that much of the climate debate is is just not based on real science. Last year, Chris was awarded the Frederick Seitz Award for Exceptional Courage in the Pursuit of Knowledge. He's been denounced in the Canadian Parliament, which I guess is a claim to fame, blessed by the Vatican, cited in the U.S. Senate, and he lectured at the British House of Lords. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks. <laughs> well, you know, I was just on a, a joint conference call with some people in the United States, and they said, make sure you ask Chris about this idea of global temperature and whether it actually makes any sense or even does the global temperature anomaly make any sense. So how would you answer them? <laughs> well, um, you have to engage with this at several several levels, and that's the problem to begin with right there. You're in trouble right from the start when you start talking about this subject. But uh, first of all, the idea of temperature is socially very saleable because everyone encounters that uh, when they're, you know, in, you know, grade school and the you know, teachers are saying, well, you know, here's the thermometer and it's red and up here and you read off that. And so they tend to associate temperature with everything. And um, so there's some very naive ideas about it. And um, it's also considered to be classical 
a science. So that means that a lot of people with advanced degrees, even in physics, don't really think much about it. So they uh, they tend to kind of talk about it as a sort of average behavior of a molecule and things like that. And and sometimes that that's okay. That that's the end of the world. But you can see how distorted it is. I was just noticing the other day. I inherited an Alexa device, which most people know what those are. It's just you know something you can speak to, and there's some so-called AI that, that that talks to you. And if I ask the AI for the temperature, the AI uh, her name is Alexa, so it's mm-hmm. a female voice. But I, I think you can change that. I mean, I don't, it doesn't really mean anything. But so I'll tend to refer to her with her pronouns. So that's okay. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so uh, she'll respond, this is the weather and this is the temperature, right? But if I say to Alexa, uh, can you give me the current uh, air pressure in kilopascals? Uh, she'll respond and give me the temperature. So she won't, ah. won't tell me what the pressure is, the current <laughs> air pressure. Because in, in, the, in the common world, there's only one thermodynamic variable and that's temperature and there isn't anything else right i mean that's that's so that that puts you in behind kind of behind the eight ball when you're trying to explain to people that there's more going on than that and um, the other problem you have is um, a lot of classical thermodynamics uh is something that has a long history dating back to the 19th century and the 18th century and uh um we had to co- cope with things like uh like fire and uh, one time people thought fire was made out of a substance called phlogiston and they tried that for a while and yeah you, know, you could do little experiments it's great to do with your grandkids as you hold up a candle and then you shine a light on your candle with the flame on it and you discover that the flame doesn't have a shadow and that's uh, the room goes Oh, how can that be? So the substance doesn't have a shadow. And it's, yeah, well, it, it turned point. out it's not a substance. Uh, and, and, and there's all kinds of problems of negative mass and things like that that happen as a result. Well, they tried to explain heat in the same way. They, they, they said, well, heat must be a substance. And they even gave a name for the substance. It was called caloric. So oh. caloric was this material that heat was supposed to be made out of. And and would flow around and so forth. And uh, I think one recent uh, history of science person saying that said that the caloric theory of heat is dead. Well, they haven't heard about ocean heat content. That's that's the caloric theory of heat in the modern age. It's uh, you know it's the uh, the modern way in which heat. If you do thermodynamics, the modern way in which you handle heat is you think about some kind of process and there's a certain amount of energy that goes into the process and there's a certain amount that's lost and the loss that losses are called heat but there's no material called heat that goes on and, and lives on and after the, the process it's just how it gets divided up in the process so there's no such thing as caloric uh, there's no heat so heat content of the of the oceans is a very sketchy idea and i think that's the problem with with um uh, people, well, that's one of, the, so one of the wonderful things about thermodynamics is all about how one type of energy gets converted into a different type of energy and how much you can get away with and so on. And so there's all these different types of energy uh, in, in the system. So 
in the 20th century, or rather, well, early 20th century, there was a lot of trouble with the notion of chemical potential. And most people don't have to deal with chemical potential until they take a chemistry class. But um, it's one of the important variables in thermodynamics. And um, the one that people are most, that's directly related to what people know is the relative humidity. It's connected to this idea of chemical potential. So I loosely say there's kind of the same thing, but there's a couple of steps connected. The two is connected to a specific chemical reaction and so on. And in that case, it's a phase change issue and uh, things to be said about that, which we won't go into. But so you have two classes of quantities in thermodynamics. One are the additive properties and they're called extensive. So you have things like energy, number of molecules, entropy, and so forth. So you can have a, a box of one and a box of another, and you can talk about the overall amount of the stuff between the two boxes. Like you can talk about the total energy in that box and total energy in that box, and you can say, what's the total energy in both boxes? Well, you just add them up and that's fine. That's an right. additive property. And you can do the same with the number of molecules. I've got a certain number in that box, a certain number in that box, I can add them up and I have a total number. That the, These quantities are called extensive. They, they concern an amount of something. But in thermodynamics, you have the, the other variables. So one is chemical potential, which I just mentioned. One is pressure. Thermodynamic pressure, not mechanical pressure, they kind of become the same under certain circumstances. But thermodynamic pressure, and then the third one, is is temperature and these ones if you have your two boxes you can have chemical potentials I mean, you would have a chemical potential associated with every particular reaction that would go on in the box uh, so you could have many of those right but it's just assumed there's only one and you have a, a pressure and you have a temperature in one box and you have a chemical potential pressure and temperature in the other box and these are called Intensive variables, and they don't describe the amount of something. They Intensive. Just, yeah, they call describe the condition of something. So you have two different kinds of things that numbers represent: the amount of something you have versus the condition. And so often, when people get into things other than physics, they get a bit confused about the amount of something. What's your amount of intelligence, or what's your the condition of your mind? I mean, this mm -hmm. issue has never really worked out. So the thing that's really important to understand about these condition variables, which are called intensive, is that they are not additive. So, so you can't take the temperature in that box and the temperature in that box and add them together and have it mean something. You can do that with energy, you can do that with number, and you can do it with entropy, but you can't do it with temperature. You can't do it with thermodynamic pressure, although when you have a physical force on a on an area, you can add up the different components to make a, a force, like a force per unit area and so on. But when you're just talking about it as a without talking about the force, it's a thermodynamic variable, and the pressure in one box has nothing to do with the pressure in the other box, and you can't add them up and, and say that that means anything. Now, statistically, you can always add them. So you can all, I, I can take any number. I can take apples and I can take oranges and I can add up the number and I can take all the telephone numbers in the telephone in the telephone book and on other countries and so on. 
I can add them up into a grand sum of telephone numbers, but it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any physical meaning. Um, of course, when you take the two boxes and you bring them into contact and you know move the wall or, or have some way in which they can communicate, you don't have to do it that way. You can also take wires and connect them so you can get conduction across, or you can have the differences in the two drive some kind of fan or something so that you can, you have some work being done while they're, they're relaxing. You can do it in many ways. And that, of course, that's one of the pitfalls of, of people using the thermodynamics is that they get thinking about the thermodynamic states, which mathematically are defined by functions. So you have all these variables are related to each other by a single function. And um, uh, whereas in the normal open world where we have dynamics, it's not, it's a different class of mathematics. It's, it's, it's differential equations. And so they're two different worlds. So it just happens that the thermodynamics is an amazing simplification that we have for all the complexities that go on at a microscopic level and so forth. So you can take you can uh, extend the idea to some extent to so it connects with the prior practical ideas of what temperature is. So we have practical ideas of what temperature is. We imagine temperature outside, imagine temperature inside. And um, so what we have is that if we had like a really small probe thermometer of some kind, we could go to every point in, in the atmosphere and we can extract a value for the temperature, but we could also extract a value for the pressure and well the proxy relative humidity and we could uh, extract a whole bunch of quantities like that uh, and each of them is just a is just a number so it's not a vector so we call it a scalar and if you have something in space that's represented as a scalar value at every point it's called a scalar field scalar so field have, okay so what we have is a scalar field of local equilibrium and you can take that local temperature and do a practical, reasonable idea of what it's going to be like, what kind of coat you have to put on, and, and, and what whether you, know, you should adjust your thermostat because you're feeling uncomfortable. I mean, those, those kinds of simple kinds of things. And, of course, you have relative humidity, which people tend to discount, and very few people pay attention to the current uh, pressure, although if I up my iPhone, I can get apps that will very precisely measure the uh, local air pressure, which is quite entertaining, actually, if you can get it. I have one It's from um, uh, generated by, there's a very nice app that's generated. I can't remember the name of it. Um, yeah. It, it's, you can hold it up, hold your iPhone up here and go down the stairs, and you discover there's a temperature pressure difference between going up and down oh. the stairs, or even the difference between holding it up here and holding it down there, you, it will, it, it's that precise. It's oh, that, wow. That's, that's how amazing. accurate it is, but it's precise. And, and so, it, it, so it's, a, it's a real part of your physical experience of the air pressure, but no one thinks about that. But even though that's part of the thermodynamic, that's a scalar thermodynamic field as well. Um, so you have all of these things and they're all related to each other. And what people insist on doing is they insist on taking this, this field, which not only exists in an instant of time, like now, uh, but also evolves in time. So they insist on taking this field and 
projecting it down onto the real numbers. Mm -hmm. So that, I'm saying this in a mathematical way for a reason, because there's no unique way to do that. You can project it down in an infinite number of ways. And the property that's really important to understand is that if you take the real number line, you could say that this number is greater or less than that number just by where it is on the line. So yeah. if you project it down onto that, what you're really doing is you're grafting on the property of greater or less onto, onto the, the field, which is not an inherent property of the field. And so you end up with this kind of bizarre situation where you can, uh, your your projection can be going up or going down, even if that's not a property of the field. Like in you know, it's, it's how how you can project it. You put, use a different rule, and what was going up in one projection is going down in another projection. And yeah. so you so you end up with this kind of property which is something that you brought to the table that is not an inherent property of the physics right so that's mm -hmm. yeah so the physics doesn't tell you that if you take all these individual numbers temperatures at points doesn't tell you how you can reduce that to a single number it doesn't tell you if you should have a mean or a mode or a median or a root mean square root mean, I mean square or, or you know this, the thing about it is that there's uh the way in which you can take well first of all i want to clarify something that people seem to misunderstand. They think that this criticism only applies to averages over temperature. It also applies to average anomalies as well. I mean, because it's just another way to take this field and project it onto the real line. It's it's mm -hmm. there's no difference. And the argument is still equally problematic. You don't escape it by saying, oh, well, let's do anomalies. I mean, that, mm -hmm. I, many people don't understand what an anomaly is. That's just where you compare you compare um, the deviation from some kind of interval of time and mm. you say, well, it's above that average or below that average. But that means then that the average is a moving average. And so there's no single rule that maps your anomaly back onto the some temperature unit. So it's, uh, yeah. it's, well, I know, it's, not, you... it's not a temperature then. <laughs> Yeah, well, right. And I know in your book, you went through some examples of how a particular set of temperatures can be shown to be increasing or decreasing over time, depending on how you construct your so-called average. And I think that's a pretty meaningful statement, isn't it? That, that shows well, there isn't a physical... The, the example of that that uh, uh, Ross McKittrick and I uh, cooked up with, uh, with Bjarne Andresen is you take a... Um, a cup of coffee and a glass of ice water, and you say, I'm not going to just say the cup of coffee is one system and uh, ice water is one system. I'm going to do what they do with climate models. And I'm going to put a rope around them, and I'm going to say this is a single system. So what's the temperature? So what happens is that uh, the hot coffee cools to the room temperature, and the ice water warms to the room temperature. So they're they're moving in opposite directions. And so it turns out that and depending on what average you use, it's either the average is either growing or decreasing. And you choose ah. an average and you get different answers about whether it's going down or going up. And that's yeah. because they you know, people say, well, do I get to do different averages? And it's like, well, there's just an average, <laughs> right? There's just the mean, you know, and, and that's actually not the case. Um, the problem with that is that 
um, how far, because average has this kind of hidden idea under the, under the hood, so to speak, where you're measuring distances of, of vectors. And mm -hmm. you say, well, okay, well, don't you just take the square of one and the square of the other one and let's take the square. Well, then if you do that, then you end up with, uh, with Euclidean distance. But if you build that into an average, which you can, and it's called a holder mean, um, it, you get a root mean square. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but that's not what most people think of when they think of the mean. They, you're supposed to add up just the length. Mm. So there's a term for that. There's a, there's a way to measure the length of a vector that way as well, just adding up the lengths. It's called the, it's called the taxicab norm. Oh, okay. And you, and you get the mean that way using a different definition of your vector or of your, your, your vector length. Right. It's, 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 uh, so it's called the holder mean. Uh, and so you have holder means and they go by a power. And so you can actually, if you're clever, you can take any set of numbers and you can generate a holder mean that will pick out any member of that set. So mm -hmm. you can, it's from the smallest to the largest. And it, it is in some sense representing the whole set. So mathematically, that's completely sound. The question is whether it's physically sound. And the, and the thing is, it sets something like statistical mechanics apart from that is the fact that you have such huge numbers and the distribution is experimentally so tight and Gaussian looking that it becomes very natural to use it. And the natural lengths of vectors are built right into it because you have the Euclidean mean for space and you have velocity squared for kinetic energy. And then it just makes sense that you'd be using root mean squares and, and it just falls out. Yeah. Um, so you can, you can do it that way if you like. Mm -hmm. And um, so then you can get functions that relate energy and entropy to number and so forth. And then when you get the, it creates a surface in a, in a higher dimensional space. And when you start looking at the slopes of the surface, it's the equilibrium surface. Uh, and get the higher dimensions, you call them manifolds, but same idea. So you get these slopes, and the slopes are the intensive variables. So it's, the, it's how much it's tilted, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they, they give you the intensive variables, so the slope. Mm -hmm. So once you're off this magical surface, you can still have a meaningful number, of, a meaningful number of molecules, meaningful number amount of energy, even a meaningful definition for entropy. You don't have to have equilibrium. So you can imagine moving around off the equilibrium surface. But the catch there is that as you move to the equilibrium surfaces, which point on the equilibrium surface should you go to? And it depends on the process that you take, which mm -hmm. one you end up at. And uh, this, this surface, by the way, is, is what's known as a convex, so it's bent, right? So the, the energy and entropy, it doesn't just, it kind of goes like, like that. And so that, the, if you take a chord across that, then that's what gives you the second law of thermodynamics, the bentness, the convexity of that surface. Oh, okay. It's kind of an interesting thing that people don't know, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. So the whole question is much more complicated than it appears on the, on the surface. I mean, you, you simply can't add them up any more than you can add up phone numbers and then calculate an average phone number. I always, wow. you know, in my I presentation. You, 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 you compute the average phone number, call it, and ask the guy what the temperature is. That's a, 
an average <laughs> yeah that's so. right or are you the average person <laughs> i'm thinking of wow. doing that in one of my next speeches is have somebody call in and, you know i could call the number and the answer are you the average person you know yeah so, right. I mean, well the problem is you have to get an actually uh, a phone number that's actually in use that's yeah that's, that's true that's you true. don't just get know. an answering machine you know so. <laughs> so back to my other question about whether color would be an intensive or extensive would you say it was intensive well i i think what i would say is that um we're stepping out of thermodynamics to get talking about color right oh okay so we're talking we're talking about other physics right so that's that's not thermodynamics is really a theory of, of functions mm -hmm. and sometimes because of a, a kind of anachronistic way of writing and a relation between things of writing it as a differential all the time which was courtesy of Gibbs, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, people tend to think of it as, as a differential equation, and it is a differential equation in the sense that you're relating differentials to each other. But one of the things that almost destroys your average uh, sophomore in, in thermodynamics is the fact that you can have differentials equal to things that aren't differentials. So you <laughs> have the um, differential of energy is equal to the something of work and something of heat right and that's they put yeah. it like a d with a baby across through it or or maybe put a delta there and so forth so the, the mathematics of that is well i would describe it as sketchy yeah uh, for sure so so with a lack of real global temperature then the fact is if you have thousands of temperature measurements very close you can't actually say that there's warming or cooling, can you? You can't even say there is global warming. Well, it's not. It's because it's not a native property of a temperature field. Mm -hmm. Now there are, I can say that there are exceptions because if you can show that every possible definition or reasonable definition of an average is below every reasonable definition of an average in another box, and say, well, every point in this box, there's two boxes. Every point in that, that box is warmer than every point in that box. It'll follow that all the definitions of averages will give you a higher value than that. And so you can then say, well, I can say the sun is warmer than the earth. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's perfectly okay to say because every point on the sun is going to be greater than every point on the earth, right? I mean, okay. Reason, right? So, so it's, there's, then the average doesn't matter at that point. It's, mm -hmm. it's, you can choose whatever rule you want. And you'll always come up with the same because the, the, the definitions of a holder mean or other classes of average, the class of averages are even bigger than that. Um, yeah. But you could, um, uh, it would always give you that the points on that box are bigger than the points on that from the average. And so yeah. then you could say the sun is warmer than the earth and not be in a state of sin or anything. <laughs> but the problem, the problem is with uh, the earth, we're talking about. Uh, uh, differences in the in the averages that are much smaller than the actual range of the data before. Oh after. yeah, and so you can't exclude other definitions producing different results. Mm -hmm. So in, in a way, it's kind of um, it's kind of a red herring in a way because I don't think climate is about temperature anyway. It's like they said, well. Not only do you have to put up with this idea of averaging over uh, a scalar field, but we're also telling you that that's what climate is. And, and I'm sorry, I don't think that's what climate is. I think 
climate is way more complicated an idea than, than that. And I don't think it's an idea that's it's been um, fully worked out as people have gone right to the conclusion because people want them to have a conclusion. Um, the reality is that climate science is really something that's been just sort of cobbled together from a whole bunch of subfields. And uh, there's no single paradigm for the whole field. That, that they, so I think Thomas Kuhn would say it's pre-paradigmic. Mm. Uh, so it's, 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 it hasn't informed into an identity. The only identity it has is on the basis of how it's something that policymakers want. So it doesn't have a coherent, there, there's, uh, there are some attempts to classify, historical attempts to classify climate. This is this type of climate, that's, that's that type of climate. But if you're trying to put it in the realm of actual physics, actual mathematics in the same sense that we have even for meteorology, where you have the initial conditions and well-defined evolution and so forth. We don't have that. And people have tried for a long time. So to uh, to take the equations that we know from classical physics and try to, you know, arrange them and average them and so on to get to something that can stand on its own. But we can't do that because of something called the closure problem of turbulence so that you can't ever close the equations and so you never really have a separate set of equations that stand in on their own merits oh, and wow. people have, people have tried that again and again and so in some sense what they've done is they've um, uh, tried to well, I would call it the, use the meteorological agenda to kind of get at what climate is and we've been doing that now for about 40 years and um it, it seems that and i give people credit for doing that because i think it's uh worth having a look at that mm -hmm. but nothing has has really come up out of it that's i use a word dispositive positive. yeah really right jumps out <laughs> at that and and it, nothing has come out that way all you really end up with is these kind of slightly um uh, torqued meteorological models that just kind of remove some stuff and add some different stuff. But it's still the same a meteorological picture that people have for it. And mm -hmm. out of that, they don't really find uh, it, it, there's this ironic thing of taking this, building this thing in this sort of really ambitious agenda and then saying, oh, let's forget all that. We'll just take all the, the scalar temperature fields in our model and we'll just average them together. And then, uh, and we'll, we'll project it on the real numbers, and then we'll make public policy statements about that. And to me, it's it's just it's just incredibly naive. And uh, it, 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 because on many levels, I mean, the, um, the physics of even on a thermodynamic level, it doesn't it doesn't wash. About the only thing that progresses with just regular state variables, like temperature and pressure and so forth is ones where there are differences. All processes have to involve differences. So you have a difference in chemical potential, which makes chemistry happen. And you have differences in pressure, which makes winds blow and differences in, in temperature, which mm -hmm. causes diffusion and winds and so forth. There's all different kinds of processes. So you have fluid dynamics, and they usually simplify fluid dynamics by saying that the fluids are incompressible. But 
if you actually derive it from the kinetic theory, you'll have the fluid dynamics, and then you'll have a separate set of equations for the movement of energy, currents of energy. And mm -hmm. so they they come as it's the package deal, and they usually say, "Oh, yeah, well, you can't really squeeze it; it'll just you know, come out the ends if you try to squeeze the the thing." So that's called the incompressibility, which means basically the divergence of the velocity. Yeah. Can you hold that thought? Because <laughs> we have to go for a break now. <laughs> we'll be right back with Dr. Christopher Essex. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after the break. ASEA believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel our very best. Our customers will tell you how our products have made a difference for them. From improving immune health and supporting gut health, to reducing the appearance of wrinkles, and even improving mind, mood, and energy. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA, we power potential. For exclusive savings, use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. Spike proteins help viruses enter into your cells, disrupting your health and your well-being. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body of spike proteins, which allows your body to repair from within, supporting your immune and respiratory systems and regulating your inflammatory response. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. You've all heard Dr. McCullough and others share over and over the value of keeping your sinuses cleansed. It's a smart move all year, but even more so when we're cooped up inside. It's not really open for debate any longer. Those that live smart and live well pay attention to nasal and oral hygiene. Cofix RX has just the tools for the job with our nasal and throat cleanse. Click the Cofix RX banner on AmericaOutloud.shop to get 20% off your entire order. That's right, AmericaOutloud.shop. Use coupon code OUTLOUD. That's coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off your entire order. Use Cofix RX because it works. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Well, the year 2024 must be the year of the Patriot, and AmericaOutloud.news will equip you with all the information you need to give new meaning to the words Patriot Act, for our actions always ultimately define our words. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio, Liberty and justice for all. So I'm back with Dr. Christopher Essex. He's Emeritus Professor of Mathematics, Emeritus Professor of Physics at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. So Chris, I just want to summarize a couple of things. First of all, extensive variables 
which would include height and weight and, as you said, number of molecules and uh, things like that. They can be uh, averaged. The word ext extensive uh, is, some, is a term that's used in thermodynamics, but what you're talking about is additive. So right. you have additivity, and, and that's uh, the, one of the key properties of um, yeah, and, and then things that are essentially qualities um, like temperature and viscosity and density and pressure, well, I guess. Is, yeah, you, that's a different thing. We haven't got into that. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> Those are in, in, I, I said chemical potential and temperature and so on. Viscosity, okay. the problem with that, bringing that in is it's not thermodynamics anymore, or at least not equilibrium thermodynamics. See, there's people who do non-equilibrium thermodynamics and they they bring try to bring in these dynamical quantities in different yeah. ways and there's lots of debate about that. So yeah. Okay. So temperature doesn't exist in in the extensive world. It's in the intensive world. So you can't average it. So you can't really generate a meaningful global temperature. So if I understand rightly, the only way that you could say definitively that there was global warming is if the range of temperatures at a certain time did not overlap the range of temperatures at a next time. Then you could say if it was warming or cooling. But I don't see how that is even possible because the range it's of temperatures- It's not a very useful idea, no. <laughs> No. In, so, fact, in fact, I would say that if you wanted to really try to capture what's going on and, and you want to talk about the nature of climate and so forth, all processes, everything that makes things go are a result of differences or mathematically, uh, if you use calculus, gradients. So if you don't have any gradients, if you don't have any differences, nothing is going to happen. So ultimately, they tend to think of uh, gradients in pressure. That's going to give you a force, gradients in chemical potential. That's going to give a diffusion of, of, of material. And uh, you're going to get uh, gradients in, in temperature. You know, there's going to be diffusion of internal energy or heat. You know? mm -hmm. But you, you have to have these differences to make a process happen. And uh, just talking about the temperature doesn't face this question about what what's making the process go, what makes the winds blow, and so forth. I mean, yeah, and, and that's an important part of discussing climate. And yeah, if there is such a thing in that, I mean, one of the the things that you know has been one of my areas of interest in research is this uh, thing called the Anderson Feynman Beethoven property of the universe, which is something that uh, my friend uh, Antonino Zucchini was pushing. He's at CERN, and that's that the universe kind of organizes itself into these little regimes that could stand on their own, you know, subatomic, atomic, chemical, kinetic, thermodynamic, relativistic, non-relativistic, and they could all just sort of exist on their own. And um, one of the things I've been looking into is, does this kind of ladder of structures extend into larger space and time regimes. And, and so I've been working on this project called uh, Slow Time. It's, it's designed to modify the fluid dynamical equations from kinetic theory straight to very long time scales. And there's all oh. kinds of interesting things that come from that. I, you know, my co-author uh, from the, the temperature paper you're talking about, uh, 
Bjarna Anderson is at the Niels Bohr Institute, and we've been working on this for a few years. Oh yeah, some sort of interesting, interesting results. But yeah. if you're going to if you're going to talk about climate at the same level that you're going to talk about more theoretical physics, you have to have equations and structures and mathematical objects like the ones I've been talking about. The, the whole family of things talking about from thermodynamics, do they continue over into into long time scales, large space scales? And mm -hmm. uh, I think that they don't. I think some of the ideas we have that we're kind of chauvinists of the laboratory scales, like we we tend to think that, that this is this is the way it is for all the rest of the world and the, all the rest of the universe. But the reality is that it's it's not. There are certain features that are important at the kinetic scale that aren't important in our in our regime, the laboratory regime. And there are certain things that appear emerge here that don't exist in the kinetic scale. And I think that's what happens on the, in the slow time regime as well. Huh. And one, wow. of the, one of the fun things we did was we went to the Niagara River uh, because one of the things we wanted to, well, ideas we wanted to experience a lot of events happening all at, you know, at, at a very high rate so that we can experience what it's like to look at this from a slow time perspective because we can kind of say, okay, well, there are lots of things happening, but we're not going to pay attention to all of them. They're going to be too short alive for us to see. And the only way we could pull that off was to have a camera with a filter on it so that we could take time exposures of the, of the, of the... and so it's really cool. I mean, you could see there's this, something called the whirlpool in the Niagara River where you have the, you have the, the, the current going around in a circle and taking a sharp right turn in this deep canyon. And the water is very turbulent and you can't really see what's going on. But with a almost one minute time exposure, you can start to see well-defined streamlines. You can see bow, bow waves and, and you can see uh, vortex shedding and all kinds of stuff that, that's invisible if you just look at it. But if you take maybe a minute or so, suddenly all these things they tell you about are sort of right there in the picture. Right? And so yeah. We also did a, tried to do a slow time video of the... Uh, of the uh, turbulence in the um, the rapids of the Niagara River, and basically you take pictures of or time exposures of the, uh, the turbulent water with two meter waves. And if you do a three minute time exposure, the whole thing looks like a calm lagoon. You know, oh just, wow! Just sitting there, it's all just. But there's certain features that stay around, and you can see them. Huh. Um, they, they, most people don't realize that if you. Uh, I mean, one of the things we did just to illustrate this idea, because it's an old photographer's trick, but we took um, a Polaroid, um, so Polaroid, polarizing filter, and we set it to complete blackness, and we put it in front, and then we put it on a tripod, and we took a picture of, of students walking across campus, and and uh, if I, we just took a regular photograph, it'd be filled with students and cars all over the place, but if we did this thing, we did a 10-minute time exposure, and all the students are gone, completely huh. deserted. And uh, the only cars that are there are ones that are either parked or you can see in the left turn lane, there's like recurrent visits of a car. But And all, all the traffic lights are both red and green at the same time. And so uh -huh. the world becomes slightly different, right? And uh, and that is should be reflected in a thermodynamic kind of thinking about very long time scales where you mm -hmm. there are things like that are too quick. 
to like climate exactly. So one of the things that uh, was very inspirational for me was there's a picture that appeared of new scientists and involved some people taking a pinhole camera and um, setting it outside to look at the sky. It's just like a tiny little pinprick, and I just put the film in there so the very little light comes in. But that's all you need in order to form an image, a tiny little thing. Pinhole camera is a standard kind of thing to do. But um, they took time exposures of six months, six months, which okay. now we're getting into climate thinking, right? I mean, right. so that picture is kind of what you'd see if you were a climate creature living on that time scale, right? So, yeah. it, it, so you could see, just as I said with the um, campus picture, 10-minute time exposure, with a six-month time exposure, you can see the individual uh, traces of the sun as it moves up in, in, uh, in altitude over the season. And you can see little dots appearing for when it's cloudy and when it's sunny. So you can, it's all graphically depicted. And, uh -huh. But the really cool thing is that the streets are completely empty, but the parking lot is full. Oh, they're there long enough that it picks up. Six months, right? So the idea is that the uh, movement of cars and people is too quick to see, but the visits of the cars are recurrent. They keep visiting over and over these same spaces, and they're different models, so the, the, uh, the, the, the headlights are kind of blurred, like there's a bunch of different headlights sort of moving around, because, because the, it's not a single car, it's a different makes, different models, but they're parking always in almost the same place. Uh -huh. So you get this kind of ghostly image filling up the whole parking lot, but there's no, yeah. the streets are completely deserted. Yeah, that's really interesting. So that would suggest if you were looking at climate, it, it must be extremely frustrating for someone like you to hear people claim that a particular event, you know, uh, extreme temperature or whatever, is an indication of climate, when in fact, with your climate camera, you wouldn't even see that event. You'd have to well, have that right. event. Yeah, you'd have to have it occurring over and over and over and over and over, year after year after year, In before exactly you could even... Yeah, yes. and then, then you might say something about climate. Exactly. And uh, but So there's a subtle point here, which is that what it's saying is there, there certainly are cars traveling on the street there, but they're too quick to see. And if you think, well, if wind speeds are something like the speed of cars, that means the wind is too quick to see. And that's a very important point because that now changes how you think about the process as, uh, itself. So what idea we had is we get around the closure problem by starting with kinetic theory rather than working from fluid dynamics. And, and that's, mm -hmm. that's kind of where we've been going. And we have all kinds of interesting problems with diverging integrals and, 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 and things like that. So we have to do the mathematics of it. And we have, you had to introduce some new quantities. Uh, mm -hmm. We had to introduce a new idea for what we mean by equilibrium. So we couldn't have, first of all, the shapes of the particle distributions are no longer Gaussian. So there's something else. And it's this normal distribution that makes it possible for us to take kinetic theory and end up with a temperature in the laboratory mm -hmm. regime. So if you shatter this idea of a Gaussian distribution, you can't have temperature. Mm. So we, we end up with non-Gaussian distributions, and some of them are 
really cool. I mean, you end up with what we call this slow time Maxwellian. It's uh, it's Gaussian in the core, and then you end up with polynomial tails. And uh, there's no way that if it can handle temperature. The problem is that that kind of thing starts diverging in moment integrals, which is how kinetic theory comes about. You take the the quantities and you average them and so on. Yeah. And use that yeah. as a probability density. But um, so you have to cope with that. And one of the things you start starts dawning on you is that the usual Maxwellian, the tails, can't be populated because there's only a finite number of molecules and you can't give all the energy to just one molecule in your distribution. Mm -hmm. But if you did, there's a maximum velocity you can have. And then mm -hmm. there's another maximum velocity because it can't be faster than the speed of light. So you 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 have to chop the tails. You have to smith <laughs> them. And yeah. so now, now you have... A new question is how does the integral really go in the real world? And there's an unknown kind of aspect to it. And so we think it's a lot, it has a kind of a flavor of classical entropy, and we're calling it epitropy, sort of like an external entropy. And okay. uh, we're just, I haven't published this yet, but uh, we think that this epitropy can actually drive processes yeah. on very long timescales. So yeah. Anyway, we're having you know, a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is very cool. You know, as I hear you speak, it reminds me of an interview that Einstein did in 1950. The announcer said towards the end of the interview, because we only have about five minutes left, uh, he said, Dr. Einstein, in the 60 seconds we have remaining on our program, could you please explain your theory of general relativity? <laughs> and Einstein paused and said, no. <laughs> because you can't and that's actually leads to my last question i mean this topic is so complicated for the average person to properly understand how can they actually talk about climate politically at all i mean is this something that can be deciphered they can they can say whatever they want they can say that uh, uh climate is causing i think the latest article i saw is causing eczema um, oh yeah, <laughs> that's right. And redheads might go extinct, and they can say, "Oh, that's the, all that that's so good." Just as long as I'm allowed to say what I have to say. I mean, uh -huh. that's okay. You can say whatever goofy thing you want. You can be naive about temperature. It's all good. But you see, that's where you start to realize what you're really dealing with is when you start to discover there's a kind of correct set of thinking, and then there's an incorrect set of thinking. And, and uh, but I, I think that always happens in the world. I mean, heresy <laughs> is essential, and that's one yeah. of the things that I got from my interactions with Freeman Dyson. Oh yeah, no, more heretics. Yeah, yeah. So him and there was another fellow who uh, a mathematician from New Zealand. Yeah, now no, they he, actually yeah. helped you, right? <laughs> well, they kind of took. Well, I mean, uh, I got advice from Freeman Dyson. Uh, he, I asked him what how I should approach this stuff because of you know I had already encountered this stuff and uh, he said that I should use uh, <clears throat> Feynman's rule and uh, Feynman's rule is uh, give the bastards more credit than they deserve and that's, <laughs> and that's always worked for him so he he suggested that's the best way to be to survive as a as a maverick yeah um, <laughs> and uh, uh, Les Woods I gave a rather rousing talk at one of the Gordon talk conferences on modern thermodynamics on the thermodynamics of the radiation field. And uh, most people don't, people who study the subject don't have a very good intuition about uh, photons 
and radiation. And uh, I have a big background in radiative transfer. So it was very natural for me to extend it into radiative entropy transfer. And so I have a, a lot of things to say about that anyway. So Les, who was a bit of a um, gadfly himself on, on plasma physics, afterwards he, he asked me to come and sit with him. And then he started giving me advice on how to keep going down this road, which I really appreciated. Uh, oh, yeah. Because I knew that I was doing some something, you know, uh, either totally crackpotish or or, <laughs> or or something that really was fun and really interesting. And, and so that's what I've gone for is I've gone for interesting over what would be useful. So oh, yeah. <laughs> sometimes the interesting well, is the useful. <laughs> Yeah, well, both perhaps useless, but what do you think about this groundhog idea? You know, I guess in two days, you know, after this interview is um, actually broadcast, we're going to be at to Groundhog Day. So, I mean, oh, uh, do you have anything groundhog to say on is, that? Is, is, groundhog <laughs> Day is uh, what's known as a cross-quarter day. Hmm. You have you have the, the, the seasons, you have the equinoxes and the solstices, winter and summer, or spring and fall. And then the halfway point in between, we have in the fall we have Halloween. That's that's one of the cross quarter days, and and the ancients thought this was you know had some mystic significance. And um, uh, Groundhog Day is another. And there's there's one in the in 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 spring like May Day, and uh, I think the beginning of August is uh, somewhere around there. So anyway, the, the Groundhog Day is one of the cross quarter days, and you can see, practically speaking, it's the six-week point of the of the season, right? It's like the splitting it right in half, and so that you can ask yourself, what's the next six weeks going to be like? And intuitively, you can come up with a kind of hand-waving explanation for why it works the way it does. Is that the atmosphere is divided by latitude to some extent? You have cold air, and then there's it's not fully mixed, and it never will be. And then you have slightly warmer air, and the transition between the two, that's where all the storms are. And, of course, it gets kinked up and then moves around and so forth. And you, people talk about the jet stream. That's kind of the border where the gradients are the greatest. You get with something called a thermal wind and fluid dynamics anyway. So so uh, you have the jet stream, and it separates the two. So there's this Arctic high in the wintertime, and if it progresses down far enough, you end up with these really cold winter days where the sun is out and the groundhog can see his shadow okay so yeah. so you're basically saying it's really cold probably although we're probably uh -huh. on friday it's going to be sunny and warm but that's uh -huh. the el nino years <laughs> right yeah so uh, but you, normally you should hope that the groundhog doesn't see his shadow and there are oh, many yeah. groundhogs by the way i mean it's uh, not just puxatani phil i mean we, we have <laughs> in ontario wireton willie and in nova scotia oh, yeah chubanakity sam and yeah. then and Mark, uh, uh, Manitoba Merv, and I think there's another one. There's another one in Manitoba. Then we have uh, um, guy uh, Chuck in Ohio, and then there's a whole <laughs> bunch of other ones. Uh, and so one of the things you should look out for is whether there's a groundhog consensus or not. Ah, yeah, exactly. But it sounds oh. like there is there is some physics behind it. You know, it makes yeah, uh, there it's is, very it, hand wavy. I don't think it's worked very well, <laughs> but apparently this is something that, that 
came from Europe at some, yeah, some point. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because there's a big, all kinds of big things about Groundhog Day that's in Christian religion that's candle mass, and there's kind of the end of the Christmas season. And so some people go beyond the twelve days and they go right to February second. Oh, I see. And so, I, that's cool. <laughs> so they, yeah, so there's all kinds of historical stuff accreted onto this, but. Astronomically, it's a it's a cross quarter day, and, and yeah. we have this the story. So watch out to see number one whether the groundhog that you are closest to sees its shadow, and whether there's a groundhog consensus. <laughs> <laughs> which which groundhog is going to be a groundhog consensus denier? Or, you know, oh yeah, <laughs> maybe Manitoba Merv is going to have a different <laughs> forecast for the next six weeks. Yeah, okay, I'll pay attention to that. I'll track it. So my guest today has been Professor Essex. He was the former director. He is the former director of Western's theoretical physics program at the University of Western Ontario. And if anybody, you know, I think an appropriate response, Chris, to a lot of this global temperature warnings is laughter. <laughs> because, funny. yeah, because as we heard today, it's hugely more complicated than that and doesn't even really exist in the real world. <laughs> so thanks no, so much. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> yeah. So thanks so much for being my guest today, Chris. Uh, my pleasure. Okay, well, this is Tom Harris with my guest, Professor Christopher Essex, signing out from the other side of the story.